So this morning we're continuing our series on the incarnation. And what do we mean by the incarnation?、Um, it's the historical event where God、um, came to Earth as a man, Jesus, two thousand years ago. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He was fully God and fully man when he came to Earth two thousand years ago. And then he was crucified on the cross, resurrected, and indeed today is in heaven still as fully God and fully man、um, at the right hand of the Father. So that's what we mean by the incarnation: that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now, I wonder what you make of this idea that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now, I suspect it's probably a more controversial idea than many of us here realise. If you're an atheist here, and you think, okay, there was a man two thousand years ago walking around Galilee, and he was claiming to be God, you're probably your first reaction is skepticism. Really, he's probably not God. He's either he was either a lunatic, either a madman. He thought he was God, but he wasn't, or he was a liar. He was an evil man who was going around telling people that he was God when actually he wasn't. So, if you're an atheist here today, you're probably quite skeptical of that claim. If you're a Muslim. You'd equally be almost outraged at the prospect that God had become a man. It's, it's almost a blasphemous thought、um, in Islam to consider that God could be, could take human flesh. Buddha, if you're a Buddhist,、uh, you know that Buddha、uh, was very clear with his followers that he wasn't God, that he wasn't God in the flesh. So again, that's a, a concept that that jars with Buddhism. So Jesus' claim to be both fully God and fully man is a bold one, and one that would be rather controversial to probably most Londoners today. In fact,、um, Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan,、um, really brought this home to me when I was listening to one of his sermons. And he said, "Think for a moment of the top ten most influential people in the world, and in, in all of history, in, and you probably think." That Jesus is in that list. In fact, he's probably in the top five, if not top three, and perhaps even the most influential person who's ever lived. So on one side, you've got your top ten most influential people who's ever lived, and on the other side, the most ten most famous people who've ever claimed to be God. And Jesus is the only person who's on both lists, if that makes sense. So he's unique in the sense that millions of people, if not billions of people, follow him, followed him throughout history, and have said, "Yes, I trust this man." And yet, he's the only man who's also claimed to be God on both lists. So this morning, then, I want to examine the claim and ask the question: Why? Why the incarnation? Why does Jesus, Son of God, come to Earth in the flesh as a man? And as I do that, I want to show you that the incarnation has huge implications for our lives,、um, both for those of you here who'd call yourself Christians, and for those of you who wouldn't. And so I want to draw out really three truths about the incarnation that I think、um, are all integral to the Christian faith. Firstly, because of the incarnation, Jesus is the prophet who enables you to see God. So the prophet that enables you to see God. Secondly, because of the incarnation, Jesus is the high priest who makes you clean. And thirdly, because of the incarnation, Jesus is the King you've always wanted. So I'm going to unpack each of these in turn. So today we're looking at Jesus, our prophet, priest. Oh, if you stay on that one, last one. Our, our incarnate brother, prophet, priest, and king. Now,、um, I'm a little bit of a political geek. 
and I'm the kind of person who watches BBC Parliament. Um, so I was going to tell you a good fact: you don't need to get the license fee to watch BBC Parliament, in case any of you are worried. But um, <laughs> probably I'm the only person who cares about that here. So anyway, I, I was, um, I'm a bit of a political geek, and uh, I was watching a documentary series a little while ago where it's lectures on the three great offices of state. So there was a lecture by former Foreign Secretary. Uh, former Home Secretary and former Chancellor—the three, apart from the Prime Minister, the three kind of most prominent positions in the British government—and I think the three offices that we're talking about today are a little bit like that: Prophet, Priest, and King. They're the three offices of ancient Israel, the three roles that God、um, called men to fill in ancient Israel. So、uh, you, God appointed prophets to reveal His truth to, the, to Israel. Uh, God appointed high priests to make a sacrifice、um, on the people's behalf in the temple, and we'll go on and explain a little bit more about that. And God appointed、uh, kings to rule over Israel. So these are the three great human offices of the people of Israel. And Jesus fulfills these three human roles ultimately in his humanity. So because of the incarnation, because Jesus came to earth as a man, he. And fulfills these three offices,、um, but he doesn't just fulfil them. He kind of、uh, is the perfect version of each one, so to speak. So he's the prophet to end all prophets. He's the ultimate revelation of God. He's the perfect high priest, and he's the king of the universe. And he's able to be these three human roles precisely because of the incarnation. So let's、um, let's if you turn in your Bibles now to、uh, Hebrews chapter one, verse one to four.、Um, Does anyone want to do a page reference? I、uh, I don't have one of your Bibles, so I need someone else to tell us the page reference. Sorry, say that again. One seven four two. Is that right? Okay. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter one, verse one to four, which really encapsulates these three threads that we're talking about: prophet, priest, and king. Okay. Is everyone there? Roughly got that in front of you, if you if you can.、Uh, there are some Bibles at the back, by the way, if you don't have any. So I'll read out from Hebrews chapter one, verse one to four. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe. By his word, by the sorry, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, so、um, let's first turn then to this idea that Jesus is the prophet who enables you to see God. Throughout history, I think. We have sought,、uh, as a humanity, we have sought to answer the question: Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is He like?、Um, and actually, many of us, there have been many attempts to answer that question: Is there a God? And what's He like? There have been many attempts to answer that question, and I think I'm,、um, I think I'm just going to take you through a few of those.、Uh, but what these three attempts have in common is that they don't give us the, fine, the full,、uh, full enough answer. They're not sufficient. So the first way that I think、uh, many people have sought to answer this question is philosophically. So if you can imagine, people have spent a lot of time looking into the philosophy of is there a god? They're trying to logically prove the, to the answer:、uh, could there be a god or not? 
And、um, some people have come up with some logical arguments, like, for example, the first cause argument. If any of you have studied any philosophy,、uh, basically the idea that everything in the u- everything in the world, everything in the universe has a cause. So if you kind of keep working back,、uh, eventually there must be a first cause to everything. So philosophically, there must be a god or some kind of creative force in the universe because if everything has a cause, there must be a cause at the very beginning. That's a, been a, a philosophical argument around for hundreds, thousands of years. Uh, other people have philosophically、uh, looked at this、uh, wonderful world that we live in, looked at the beauty of creation, looked at the intricacy of how it all fits together, and have said, "Well, this can't happen by chance." You know, looking at、uh, you might have heard the idea of like a, a watchmaker or a blind watchmaker. The idea that a, you know a watchmaker, a watch needs a watchmaker. So in the same way, if, if you look at our intricate creation, look at the way the beauty is. Uh, the world is constructed. There must be a, a creator behind the world, and they've argued that. And again, I think both of those arguments have a lot of lot of reasonableness. There's a lot of a lot of credence, but they're not sufficient to really answer that question fully. Because even if you come to the conclusion, if you say, "Yeah, I'm persuaded by both of those. I believe that there is a a creator to the universe," they don't tell you anything about what that creator is like. In fact, if anything, you don't even know if that creator or creative force or energy has any.、Um, Compassion on humanity has any care for humanity? Has any?、Um, does does he intervene with the in the world? Does he even care about the world? How does he want us to live? So those those arguments from philosophy will only take you so far. Then they're, they're not enough. Others have have looked to prophets. So they've looked to people who say, actually, I've heard from God, and God has said、uh, these things about what he's like. Uh, so and in fact, we saw that at the beginning of Hebrews. You know,、uh, it says long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that's that's in the history of the, of the people of Israel of the,、um, who are being written to、uh, in this book, and that again, so that's a reasonable way of understanding about who God is, who God is. But there's a challenge there as well. These prophets who speak to various communities at various times are speaking into those specific communities. So you can. So the question remains: Can we take what they've said to those communities and apply those? Those prophecies to ourselves, if that makes sense. Prophets speak into specific contexts at specific times, so the argument still remains: Does what they've said about God apply to us? You know, a lot of those. If you think back to a lot of the prophecies to, to ancient Israel, a lot of them are very context-specific. They're very specific to the people of Israel, so they don't actually tell us much about what God,、uh, what applies to us, so to speak.、Um, so they're not enough or sufficient either. The third way I think many people have tried to find out about God is through spiritual experience, their own direct experience with God. So they say, well,、uh, you know, there's a long history of of mystics, even、uh, Christian faith, that people like Julian of Norwich,、uh, different people who've, who've prayed and meditated and experienced God speaking to them. Again. Not wrong at all. I mean, we absolutely, as New Testament Christians, believe in the gift of prophecy, believe that God speaks to us today. But if it on its own is it sufficient? Because actually, if you're if you're listening to God, how can you be sure that what you're hearing is actually God? How can you be sure that you're not just hearing what you want to hear? If that makes sense. So I would argue that we have a problem. That philosophy won't take us, won't be able to fully answer that question of who is God and what is He like. Sorry, is there a God and what is He like?、Uh, prophets won't answer that question for us, and neither will direct spiritual experience. None of these things can truly show us. Um, God in detail, give, give us the detail or the clarity or, or the certainty about God that we need. So, what's the solution then to this problem? How do we see and know God? Well, perhaps you've already got the answer、um, behind me.、Uh, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. 
the one who truly and ultimately reveals God to us, and in doing so, answers our questions about God. Um, so historically, as you can see in, in Hebrews uh, verse 1, uh, God has spoken to the people of Israel uh, through prophets, through people like Moses, through Samuel, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah. These guys heard from God, and then they spoke that directly to the people of Israel. So for example, you know, we, we, we did a series on Jonah. Most of you will remember he was a prophet from God, and, um, and he was calling, he wasn't actually speaking to the people of Israel, but he was speaking to another group, set of people, calling them into repentance, calling them to turn to God. Um, and you know, other times, prophets call people to do certain things, like Naaman uh, being called uh, to go and wash in the River Jordan and is healed of leprosy. Um, God tells Joshua to go and march around the city of Jericho and the walls fall down. So we get all these um, times where God speaks to the people of Israel through these prophets. And in these interactions, we do get a glimpse of God's character. So, for example, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, Uh, Jonah tells us something of what God is like. And for those of you who are here, you'll remember uh, this when he says, he's speaking, so this is Jonah talking to God. He says, for I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So we can see in the Old Testament that the truth of what the writer in Hebrews is saying here, that God has spoken in many times and in many ways to different prophets and, and um, to different generations of the Hebrew people who, is now, uh, write, who the writer is now writing to. But then he goes on to say, and the, the verse continues, but now he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is a prophet But in his incarnation, he's the ultimate prophet. He's the final prophet, so to speak, at the end of the long line of prophets um, who've spoken to us. Um, In Deuteronomy 18, uh, near the beginning of the Bible, um, there's a guy called Moses. I assume most of you have heard um, about Moses. And actually, in, in, um, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses tells us that a prophet like him will come to follow him. So I'll just read out uh, what he says. Uh, this, is the, this is Moses talking to the people of Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So you've got this prophecy right back near the beginning of the Old Testament. God speaks to the people through Moses and tells them that there's going to be another prophet like him um, speaking to the people. And in Acts 3, then Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, after Jesus has come and he's speaking to the Jewish people, he reminds them, he reminds the Jewish people of this prophecy. And, as, as, and it's an, as one of the examples, one of the many examples in the Old Testament where Jesus is being prophesied about, where, where, the, where the people of Israel are being told that a Messiah is going to come. And interestingly, to be this prophet, Jesus had to be a man because it says, he's going to raise up from among their brothers. So he had to be a man. He had to be incarnate to be the prophet, if that makes sense, in the first place. In fact, there's also some other interesting analogies when you think about Moses. Moses was a prophet when he spoke to the people of Israel, but also a prophet who led his people out of slavery. 
He brought them into the promised land, brought them into freedom. In the same way, Jesus is, is that same leader prophet who led his people out of slavery, not slavery to Egypt, but slavery to sin, and brings them into the freedom of our promised land, so to speak, which is this freedom and this relationship with God. So it's interesting the parallels you see. So Jesus is a prophet, which we can see that from the, from the way that Moses prophesied. But more than that, I would still argue he's the ultimate prophet. And um, I'm going to give you a few examples of that, of how Jesus is not just a prophet, but he's the ultimate prophet who enables us to see God. I've got three, three things I want to share. Firstly, the prophets gave us glimpses about who God is. They gave us little snapshots, moments. But Jesus gives us the full picture of what God is like. Uh, the, now, the best analogy I can think of here is, um, who, is everyone familiar with the bio-tapestry? The bio-tapestry? Um, in English history? You've got this um, tapestry that was uh, sto- sewed together, embroidered. I'm not entirely sure what the, the technical term is. Uh, a, a tapestry that was made um, in around 1066. So the conquest of England. Um, it depicts when the Normans came and conquered England. And you can imagine that there were lots of different people who put together the bio-tapestry. And... and um, The prophets are a little bit like telling us, giving us little snapshots of the tapestry, if that makes sense. So there's a a really famous part of the tapestry where you can see that that Harold, uh, the English ruler at the time, has an arrow in his eye. So there's quite a famous picture of that. You can imagine one prophet giving us a snapshot that the king will die with an arrow in his eye. You can imagine another uh, prophet giving us a snapshot of the horses leaving the battle at the end of the battle as as the English lost. And you might have another... um, prophet giving us a picture of uh, another part of the conquest, the beginning of the conquest. So you kind of get this impression that um, the prophets are each giving us snapshots of what God is like, but Jesus is the equivalent of the whole bio-tapestry. That it's, as you, as you, as you uh, what's the word, zoom out? Zoom out and you see the whole tapestry um, in, the, uh, in its fullness, then suddenly all the individual pictures make sense. So let me give you an example of this. Um, Isaiah 53, I'll just, I'll just turn to it and read to you. Isaiah 53 is one of the most kind of famous prophecies about Jesus um, as the Messiah. And um, I'll just read out a little bit of it, uh, verse 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So if you were a contemporary Israelite, so to speak, and you heard the prophecy of Isaiah... And you said, what does it mean when he's talking about this Messiah who's going to be pierced for our transgressions? That probably doesn't make a great deal of sense to you. You don't really know what that means. But now, in the light of the cross, when we understand that Jesus was actually pierced for our transgressions, that nails went through his arms as he was on the cross, and that he um, was crushed for our iniquities, you get this picture on the cross, literally, of him being pierced for our transgressions. Suddenly, that prophecy makes sense. So Jesus is this the ultimate revelation of God, who actually, as you zoom out, then you can understand all the other little mini revelations of God that we've seen in the Old Testament, that God has been speaking for generations before Jesus. So that's the first thing. Jesus is is the full picture, whereas the prophets were glimpses. Secondly, whereas other prophets spoke the words about God, Jesus is the literal word from God. He's the literal word from God made flesh. So he's not, just, he's not just a set of propositions. He's not just telling us facts about God. Jesus is literally the word of God made flesh. Um, 
In fact, this is so important that John tells us in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus is not just telling us our ideas about God, but he is God himself. Imagine for the moment you'd never seen a chair. You'd never seen a chair in the whole, and you're all sitting on one now, but imagine that you'd never seen a chair. And I, and, and I wanted to sell you a chair. We're, we're moving house soon, so we want to sell, sell a chair that we don't want to take to our new house. And, um, and I could try and describe that chair to you. I could say, well, it, it's wooden. You can sit on it. It's got four legs. Um, <laughs> it's, got, uh, it's got four legs. It's got a wooden back. I could tell you about it. But if you'd never seen a chair probably wouldn't make a great deal of sense to you. You probably couldn't draw that, for example. The best way of coming to know what a chair is, is just come around my house and you can see it. And that's the same with Jesus. We have these kind of descriptions, we're told about God, but when we see Jesus in the flesh, we literally get to see God in the flesh. We literally get to see what God is like. Um, I'll give you another example. So, in, uh, and this is like the prophet. So in Jonah chapter four, remember that, that verse where he talked about God being gracious God and merciful. So we kind of hear that God is gracious and merciful in Jonah. In the gospels, we actually see what that looks like. We get flesh on the bones, so to speak. We get to actually see what it means that God is gracious and merciful. So in John eight, um, Jesus encounters a sinful woman who has um, been caught in adultery or maybe a prostitution, I'm not quite sure. Um, so Jesus is caught, uh, this woman's been caught in adultery and, um, and he speaks words of mercy to her. He speaks forgiveness to her. He dispatches the people who are, going to, uh, are about to stone her for this. And instead he um, forgives her and encourages her to go and sin no more. So you see, you get a literal picture of what it means that God is gracious and merciful when you see Jesus in the flesh, in the Gospels. Jesus gives us a better picture, the ultimate revelation. Um, and the revelation is literally his life, um, and, uh, in, in, as depicted in the Gospels. It's a, it's, this is such a shift in the kind of what it means, what the revelation looks like. It's like going from kind of black and white to 3D. You know, you kind of had a, you had a, a kind of picture before, and now we get the full picture in 3D. Um, it's, in Colossians 1.15, it describes it as, uh, Jesus, this describes Jesus as the visible image of the invisible God. So when G, with the incarnation, with Jesus, God has become visible. We can now see God. It's like as a humanity, as a, as a the human race, we can say now we have encountered God. We know what he's like because Jesus has come to us. So what are then the implications of this for us? Well, the firstly, for those of you who aren't Christians, I would say the imperative For you is if you want to look into God, if you want to understand what God is like, the best way of doing so is looking at Jesus. Um, I think there's a lot of people actually in the world who say, actually, yeah, I think there's some kind of creator. I think there's some kind of creative force in the world, but I can't really put I can't really put a face on it. I can't really tell you what what that what that God is like. In fact, they probably said God's not personal. Almost, they kind of reluctantly said, yeah, I think there might be a creative force, but I don't think we can know him. But actually, um, and I met someone yesterday, myself and Chloe and um, Bobby and Charlie were in uh, Elephant Castle giving out some mince pies and offering to pray for people yesterday um, afternoon. And we met this guy called David. And he was saying, look, I really, I really believe in there being a kind of creative force. I look at the, the wonder of how cells replicate themselves, themselves and how they kind of grow different parts of the body without anybody instructing them to do it. And he says, I find that really amazing. I'm, I find the, um, and he said, I think there must be kind of a creative force or energy. But I don't think God's personal. 
And what I wanted to say to David and what I want to say to you now is that force, that creative force that, you, that you've understood has a name and his name is Jesus. If he is who he says he is, then you can know that force. I'm not saying that God is actually a force, but I'm, from David's perspective, um, that force has a name and you can know him personally. Um, you can relate to him. So if you're here today and you're not sure about God, you're not sure about Christianity, you're not sure if it's true, then what I would say is start with Jesus and simply try to answer the question, is this man who he says he is? Is he actually God in the flesh? And that's a much easier question to answer than is there a God and trying to answer it philosophically or looking at nature and trying to say, well, you know, the trees are really beautiful, so there must be a God. Actually, you just have to answer the question, is this man who he says he is? That's, that's all he, I would ask you. And I think Jesus is almost like a, a cheat sheet. Does, do you hear me right? Cheat sheet. <laughs> um, he's, our, he's our cheat sheet from God. We can actually almost look to Jesus and then we can get an understanding of what God is like. And I think if you're looking to answer that question of what God is like, the best way, best place to start is looking at Jesus in the Gospels. Um, I've got a quote here from Einstein um, about about how much you can encounter Jesus in the Gospels, if that makes sense. So he said this in an American newspaper in 1929. As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. So that is the person of Jesus, and you can encounter him in the Gospels. I remember when I was 14, I don't come from a Christian family, and I remember reading the Gospels, or the New Testament for the first time, reading the Gospels, and, and again, being struck with that same way that Jesus just kind of hits you from the page. He's a, so I really, I just entirely want to recommend that to you, if that's you. Secondly, if you are here as a Christian, then the application here is to know Christ. If God has revealed himself ultimately in Christ, then he can be engaged with, he can be related with, he can be prayed to in a personal way. Um, what does it mean to know Christ? Um, forgive me if you're a French speaker here before I muck up these words, but um, there are two words for to know, the verb to know, K-N-O-W, um, in French. Uh, savoir and connaître. You can pr- correct my pronunciation later. But savoir, if you savoir something, it means I know I know that of something. So like, I know that, that there are some presents underneath that tree. I savoir that. Um, <laughs> um, I'll leave the French speaking to Joyce and Jen and any other French speakers and Jenny. Um, so, um, and if you connaître something, it means to know someone personally. To know, like, um, I, I know my wife, if that makes sense. Um, to, know, to know someone personally. So when we talk about knowing Christ... We're talking about the second type of knowing. We're not just talking about an intellectual knowledge. I know that Jesus is the Messiah. We're saying it's a knowing personally. It's a personal relating. It's a personal relationship. And Jesus in the incarnation has shown that this is, this is possible. God is not just a set of propositions anymore. So when we worship, we're not just singing to each other. We're singing to the person of Jesus. When we pray, we're not just, pr- we're not just praying. We're not just saying words We're not just sending up email requests to God. We're praying to our brother. Actually, we're also praying to our father, father in heaven, and we're also praying to our brother, Jesus. And and this is why we can think of prayer as an encounter with God. This is the theology behind why we say prayer is not just 
uh, kind of saying words into empty space, but an encounter with God. So when you pray, do you tell God what's really going on? Do you, are you honest with God when you pray? Do you confide in God? Um, do you listen to him? This is, again, an aspect where the gift of prophecy comes in. Do you wrestle with him? Do you say, Lord, I'm finding this really hard. I don't know why you've asked me to do this. I'm really struggling with this. Do you, are you honest? Are you having an honest dialogue or are you sending up requests, so to speak? I think that's the, that's the difference in what it looks like. So um, we're speaking to one. In prayer, we're speaking to one who calls us friends. If we're Christians, if we've been adopted into the family of Jesus, then we're not just, we're talking to our brother and we're talking to one who calls us friends. Finally, the third implication we are called to the adventure that Jesus, uh, we're called to Jesus' adventure. As Jesus, just as Jesus has revealed God to us, I think he's also revealed to us. He's given us a picture of what the perfect human life looks like. We have a model to follow. We, um, a person to emulate, so to speak. So when we look at Jesus in the Gospels, we're not, um, it's almost like, uh, what, what is ethics 101 in Christianity? It's what would Jesus do? I hate to you know, not so you think of the trite wristbands or whatever, but actually ethics 101 in Christianity is what would Jesus do? I'm not saying that the rest of the New Testament isn't valid. I'm not, not don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying like, I'm a, like it's just, just listen to the red letters, so to speak. But it is true that we look at Jesus and we have a picture of what the human life looks like. His compassion, his courage, his boldness, his honesty, his willingness to upset the apple cart if it means um, ministering to the spiritual needs of, of others. And we see this example in the Gospels and we're called to follow it. The Christian life is not just a matter of reading your Bible and going to church. Actually, we've been called on an adventure with Jesus to follow and uh, emulate him, to show his compassion to the world, to love the world, to minister to needs, to, to share the gospel, um, to pray for healing and to see the sick healed. Like this is, we're called to this adventure that Jesus called us on. It's not just a matter of... Um, you know, reading the Bible and going to church, although those are both great things. Um, so we see this picture of a perfect life of obedience, compassion, and sacrifice, and this is the model for us. Now, as I say this, I'm aware that many of you will look at that and go, wow, that's really challenging. I'm, I already feel condemned just by hearing, hearing you say that, but before I even try to live that out. And that's really good because we're moving on to the second point. Jesus is the great high priest who makes you clean. Now, I would argue that many of us desire to be clean. Now, I would say our generation, I'm 28 years old, our, the generation um, that many of us are in would look around the world today and say it's very clear that the world is broken. We don't need, you know, two, maybe 100 years ago, at the turn of the 20th century, there was a belief that the world was just going to get better. A humanist, you know, the idea of humanism is a little bit bound up in this, which basically says humans are great and we're going to, you know, see the world get better and better. And there's going to be no more conflict. You know, Mr. Keynes, Mr. Keynes, the economist, believed that one day consumption would stop growing. You know, we kind of meet this place of utopia. Total rubbish. <laughs> look at the universe, look at the universe, look at the world today. And I think we'll see a world riven in conflict. And I think we, know we, we don't have any illusions. This generation doesn't have any illusions as to the brokenness of human nature. That actually the world is broken because people are selfish. And we just have to look at a, uh, you know, a situation like Aleppo or, or different things all the time. I'm sure we can each think of hundreds of different uh, times we look around the world today and we see that brokenness. Um, that humanity doesn't live up to our own collective standards. And I think then it's a short step, 
But the majority of people, I would say most people, recognize this in ourselves as well. We don't just look outwardly and see that in humanity. We also see that in ourselves. Now, most of the time, people are trying to brush it under the carpet. Most of the time, people are trying to avoid, no, I'm, I'm great, I'm good. But actually, if in the cold, hard light of day, after, something, after we've done something wrong, after, we, um, after our own brokenness, our own sin has been so kind of with a mirror in front of us, after we've done something and it's become really obvious to us, I think we recognize that we're not the people we want to be. We recognize that we let people down. We recognize that we hurt others. We recognize, you know, I go about this and this happens like literally every 10 minutes for me, <laughs> but, but I'm sure many of you, and it's usually because I have, <laughs> um, but, but I recognize that most people in a cold, hard light of day um, experience this, that they recognize they're not the people they want to be. And this is part of what the Bible calls sin. Um, I think we also see this desire uh, we see this recognition, sorry, in the literature that we, that we see in our, around us. So I was in a cafe a couple of days ago preparing this, and I was looking at books like Clean Cakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, tell me, I'm not entirely sure what clean cakes are. Um, the Food Lovers Cleanse, The Detox Kitchen Bible. I believe it's probably a book called Eat Yourself Clean, although I didn't see that there. Um, my point is that we see in our literature a desire to purify ourselves, a desire to cleanse ourselves, and a belief that by what we eat or what we drink or, or how we, maybe how we might meditate or something, that we can, we can do different things to make ourselves pure. I, mean, I, think, I don't think that's true, obviously. I don't think it'll actually be what we need, but it, what it points to is a recognition that, we, that something is wrong, that's, that, that actually we need purification, that we need cleansing. And I would also argue that every worldview, actually, religious or not, recognises this wrong, recognises the existence of evil within us. So think about Islam, which says, you know, you will do bad things, and what you've got to do is do more good things to offset the bad things. And one day those two things are going to be weighed up before God. Or think about um, Orthodox Judaism, we've got Yom Kippur, one day a year when we're going to fast and pray, and maybe twirl a chicken around our heads, um, if you're really orthodox, and uh, I can say that I'm Jewish, it's not anti-Semitic. Um, <laughs> and um, so, um, yeah, so basically you believe that you can make yourself pure. <laughs> Sorry. Or I would say like a secular worldview, um, karma, they might... Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, they, like, you might, like, a lot of people around me in work who aren't Christians or anything, religious people would say, um, sorry, for some reason looking at these three makes me want to laugh. <laughs> I'm just going to talk to this side of the room for a moment. Um, yeah, so the idea, like, they might say, well, you know, basically it's about doing good karma, like basically um, do good, don't do bad things, and then good thing, more good things will happen to you. But a recognition that actually bad things do happen, because that's why we've got to have karma in the first place. So I think a lot of people recognize this problem. And then I think this problem is further compounded when we face God. When we expose ourselves to Jesus, when we come face to face with this perfect life in the Gospels, we're even more challenged about how to live our lives. It's like Jesus is like a UV light. I don't know if you've ever, ever had a UV light exposed on something. I was... Um, I think if you like go to the dentist, you can see that they might expose UV light and you see, oh, suddenly these clean teeth are actually really dirty. Um, I think it's a bit like that, that Jesus, when we see, come face to face with God, we, our sin, our brokenness is so exposed to us. Um, a time that, that speaks to this is in Matthew 15, verse 17 to 20, when Jesus tells the disciples. Uh, so basically, there's some like ritual purity. People are saying, you know, you've got to make sure you've got to eat different things to be pure, a bit like today. Um, and Jesus says, actually, it's the opposite. He says, and you said, are you still not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? 
But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. From out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, as as you continue to expose yourself to the words of Jesus in the Gospels, you'll continue to get hard, challenging words like that, that many of us will actually see, yeah, there is evil within us. We're not as good as we think we are. And actually, we need this cleansing and purification that I'm talking about. So this this holiness of God, this this actually presents a problem. Because if if we, on one hand, see a holy God, a perfect God, who's all righteous, and on the other hand, we see ourselves not clean and pure, not the people that we want to be, this presents a problem for a relationship with God. It makes it very difficult to, um, to have a relationship with God. Impossible, actually, to meet and be in relationship with this holy, perfect God when we are imperfect. And there's a couple of times, a couple of times in Scripture that we see that, where, the, the, where people recognise their own sin when they come before God and they think, I can't be in relationship with you. I can't know you. So Peter, in cha- uh, Luke chapter 5, Jesus, um, encounter- Jesus shows him his divinity. He shows him um, that he's God, uh, and, and this is what happens. So, but when Peter, so basically they've been fishing all night. They've been going out and fishing, and they haven't caught anything. And then Jesus tells them to put the, the nets on the other side of the boat, and they catch a really great uh, harvest or, or catch of fish. And, um, and then this is Peter's response when he sees it. So... Um, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled out both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, excuse me, saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So Peter, he sees Jesus' miraculous powers, so to speak. That he, that he sees that he's, Jesus has caught a tremendous catch of fish. They've been there all night. They hadn't caught anything. Jesus comes along. Suddenly, this huge catch of fish. So, so suddenly, Simon realizes this guy, Jesus, he's not, not who I thought he was. He's, I mean, I don't know whether he quite realizes that he's God at that point or whether he believe, believes he's a prophet or, or a messiah. But at some point, he's like, whoa, I, you can't be around me, Jesus. No, not me. I'm, I'm sinful. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. Similarly, in Isaiah, I'm not going to read it now, but in Isaiah chapter 6, do you remember the prophet Isaiah comes face to face with God in the temple and he says, woe to, woe, woe to me, sorry, that, woe, woe is me, I have unclean lips. Same reaction, he comes face to face with the holy God, perfect God, and says, woe is me. And it's that same reaction to God. So we see intuitively that this lack of purity, this lack of holiness, this, uh, this sin in us is a problem for our relationship with God. So what's the solution then? How are we going to make ourselves clean? Well, you need a high priest. In the Old Testament, God sets up a system of priests who offered sacrifices in the temple, usually different animals, uh, calves or or goats or, or lambs, to atone for the sins of the people and make them right with God. So if you look through Leviticus and Numbers, uh, some of the earlier books of the Bible, you see uh, this, this system, it's quite an elaborate system of sacrifices, um, you know, instructions given to the priests that if they're going to sacrifice a lamb, they need to do this, it needs to be without blemish. There's a really extensive um, kind of process set out for how the people will make themselves clean by atoning for their sins with the, with the blood of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, the blood of the cow, the heifer. 
Now, you might say, how does the blood of goats and cows and lambs bring forgiveness? How does this old system, old temple system of sacrifice that we see in the Old Testament bring about the forgiveness of sins? Actually, the Old, uh, old Testament, the old temple system isn't the main point. It's a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate high priest, Jesus. It's actually like a trailer. It's like for day after day, the Israelites are going through this system this, um, of sacrifice, and it's a trailer. It's something, something's coming. This is a foreshadowing of, of the new covenant that Jesus is going to bring. So in Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the pre- it says the priests serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So the old temple, the tabernacle, the, the systems of, of sacrifice are a shadow, a, a, a kind of uh, inferior version of this final new covenant that Jesus is bringing, of which Jesus is the high priest. So Jesus is our high priest. And I would say he's the high priest who enables you to be clean. So what does it mean that Jesus is the high priest? And I'll just do four quick points. The first one is he's the sacrifice for sin. So just as the priests were taking these lambs, taking these animals to be a sacrifice for sins on the altar, just as they were taking people, uh, these, these animals as a sacrifice for people's sin, so Jesus sacrificed his life on the cross for our sin. Again, Isaiah 53, what I read earlier, but he was pierced for our transgressions, dot, 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 and with his wounds we are healed. So on the cross, Jesus deals with our sin. This problem of lack of purity, this problem of a lack of cleanliness, and the reason that we can't relate to God, we can't be in relationship with God, Jesus deals with that problem on the cross. He literally makes it possible for people to be reconciled and in relationship with God. By his wounds, by he's, he's pierced for our transgressions. He experiences the punishment on the cross that our sins deserve, and by, our wo- by his wounds, we are healed. Healed not of sickness, but healed of this sin problem that we are forgiven, and what's more, we're set on a healing journey, that one day we're going to be in heaven with God without that same sin sickness, without that same lack of purity. And one day we're going to be with God in heaven, worshipping him, totally pure, totally righteous and holy, and the people that God ultimately intended us to be when he created us. So Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross, and he's laid on, sorry, God has dealt with our sin on the cross, he's laid us uh, the punishment on Jesus. So he's not just the high priest. Jesus is actually also the lamb. He's also the sacrificial lamb in the sacrifice. He's he's not only as God humbled himself, Jesus has humbled himself to come down onto earth and be our high priest, to take the form of flesh and with all the things, all the weakness that involves, he's also humbled himself to get on the altar. Imagine if you're in the temple and, you, and you know, you're an Israelite, you're watching the priest do it, and the priest is putting the lamb on the, on the temple, and then he says, actually, no, that lamb's not sufficient sacrifice. I'm going to get on the, t- on the altar as well. You'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? And this, Jesus is doing a remarkable thing here by becoming our, our, our Passover lamb, our, our sacrificial lamb. Um, so he is, he is that sacrifice. And actually, his sacrifice is unlike the sacrifice of the temple. In the temple, they had to sacrifice every day. That sacrifice wasn't enough. They had to repeat it every day. But Jesus' sacrifice is once for all, for all time. I'll just read you a verse that in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 that, that illustrates that. That's 11 to 12. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time, 
a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So you can see that Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice is unlike any other sacrifice because it's for all time and for all people. And that offer of salvation and forgiveness of sins is for all people. Um, so he's, those are the two things. Three things. As a high priest, Jesus intercedes for us. He prays for us. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is not just our sacrificial lamb. He's not just our high priest. He's also interceding for us, for the Father. He's an advocate to, to the Father for us. He's praying for us. Our brother's praying for us in heaven. That's pretty cool. When someone, one of you offers to pray for me, I'm, I'm grateful. When Jesus is praying for me, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, finally, he sympathizes with us. He understands us. In, um, in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews is basically a lot about this great high priest. So sorry to keep darting around in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So Jesus knows what it's like to be human. The whole, another really key aspect of the incarnation is that Jesus came to earth and experienced humanity. He experienced what it's like to be human. Just think for that moment, your understanding of who God is. God himself experiences the weakness, the, the, the temptation that comes with being in human flesh and yet never sinned. So Jesus understands us. I think there's two ways that he understands us. One, he was tempted in every respect. Jesus knows what it's like to experience temptation. When we're experiencing temptation, when we're struggling with sin, when we're saying, oh, I just want to do that, and I just can't do it, and you know, you're wrestling with it, and maybe you've been through a period where you, I've, I've messed up, and I'm kind of coming back to the cross, you can know that he's been there before us. Jesus is like a general who's leading the troops, but the troops know that he's been in the trenches already. You know, like, you know, back in the day, there's a stereotypical idea, the generals over here and all the troops are having to go into battle without, you know, they're risking their lives and he's just sitting there, sitting pretty, uh, watching them potentially lose their lives. Jesus is the opposite type of leader. He's been there before. He's been in the trenches. He's experienced the same temptations that you're experiencing. And yet now he's leading us from heaven. Does that make sense? He's been there before us. Jesus is our brother priest coming from among us to lead us. He spent time in our frame. He knows how hard temptation can be sometimes. And yet he's also a great example because he has won the battle against sin. He's lived the life and never sinned. So when we're struggling with sin and we're saying, oh, I'm really struggling. I can't overcome this sin. It's impossible. We do have our hero, Jesus, to look to and say, actually, it's possible in the power of the Holy Spirit not on our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible to overcome this sin. And that's a great encouragement. Secondly, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands what we're going through. And this is, uh, Jess was praying about this, just, to, just as we were uh, worshiping earlier. Jesus' human experience means that he understands us. He knows the emotions that we experience. He knows the hard things that we're experiencing. He's experienced suffering. As some of us, no doubt, are experiencing suffering at the moment, we can take great comfort to know that Jesus has been there before us and has experienced this suffering. If you're experiencing loneliness, you can know that Jesus has been there. He's experienced the rejection of his, of his closest friends. If you're experiencing betrayal, you know, Jesus has experienced that already. He's experienced betrayal when uh, Peter 
denied him three times as he was about to be crucified. If you're experiencing rejection for your faith, know that Jesus has already experienced scorn and rejection and, um, from those around him, ultimately leading to the cross. So Jesus is not standing afar, looking at our lives, saying, you know, it'll be great, guys. He's our brother priest, sitting with us as we experience those difficult things. He's not distant, he's not removed, but he, he understands our experience. So when we pray, we can bring our prayers to him with that knowledge that he knows what we're going through. And, uh, you know, there's a wonderful phrase that says, to be loved is to be known, and to be known is to be loved. Jesus knows us, he understands us, and he loves us. That makes his love all the more real because we know that he knows what we're going through. He knows what, how, what the hardships that we face. So Jesus is our great human high priest and he's made himself our ultimate sacrifice and he's praying with us before the Father and he sympathizes with us. He understands us. What are the implications for us? Just two very quick implications. If you're a Christian, I see someone's eyes raised. I think there should be very quick implications, sorry. Um, <laughs> run, if you're a Christian, run to him. You can run to him. When you're going through temptation, when you're going through these suffering times, you don't have to suffer in isolation. You can run to God. Particularly when we're talking about sin here. It's so easy to beat yourself up, to look at your own life and say, oh, I'm just rubbish. I condemn myself. Just wallow in your sin. I just can't beat this. The last thing you want to do then, or many of us experience, the last thing you want to do is to go to God with our sin, to confess that to him. And yet this is our brother. He knows the, 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 the temptations we experience. He has experienced suffering. He, we don't have to run away from him when we experience sin. He wants us to run right to him instead. He understands the fight you're in. Your sinfulness doesn't surprise him. Um, and in fact, he, he made you, so he knows, what, knows how broken you are. So when you sin, you can run to him. When you're feeling weakness as a Christian, know that you're not alone. Know that he understands you and you can bring your burdens to him. You know, verse 16, after this passage about the, him being the great high priest, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So you can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Like uh, Luther describes it as like gutsy guilt. When you've sinned, you can go to God knowing that he has made it for you possible for you to go to him. If you're not a Christian, then I just say that you, that, that you need to get right with God. But actually, this, the answer to, if you're a Christian here, the answer is you can run to him. But if you're not a Christian here, then you've never experienced the idea that you can run to God and experience your forgiveness for the first time. I think that's such a tremendous thing. Uh, you're, you're, if you're not a Christian here, you're kind of back where, where I was about five, ten minutes ago when I was saying you're in this problem where there's a holy God and, and an unholy us and there's no possibility of relationship. So if you're not a Christian here, the imperative is to make ourselves right with God, to come to him and experience his forgiveness and the sacrifice that he's given us. Finally then, briefly, the king. We've talked about prophet, we've talked about priest. Jesus is the king we've always wanted. Now we've seen that Jesus is our prophet, we've seen that he's our high priest, but I also think he, has, he, he is the one that we've been waiting for to rule us, to lead us. Now, I'm going to argue to you, I would argue to you today, that actually we want someone to rule us. We want someone to lead us. Now, there may be some of you here who are sceptical of that because we live in the age of autonomy, don't we? We live on the, the anti-authority age that says, you know, screw, screw uh, you know, prime ministers or whoever the authorities are over our lives. We are going to rule our own lives. We are the ones who are to be authority over our own lives. And yet, I think we also live in the age of the hero, that we live in an age where we, more than ever, 
worship and adore people. We look to certain people in our lives and we say, this person is, our, is my saviour. This person knows how I should live. Um, and, and we look to them. I just think of a few examples. Guy sits opposite me at work. He got a DVD of Cristiano Ronaldo. And he was like, I'm so happy. Cristiano Ronaldo is my hero. I'm, so, I'm going to watch this DVD. And I'm going like, to like look to live. He was like quoting Cristiano Ronaldo to me in a kind of feedback session of how he lives his life. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo was like his hero. He, he was a picture of how to live his life. Uh, my, one of my other colleagues, he's an he's a aspiring marketeer, and he watches lots of online videos about, from different marketeers, and he's got these kind of guys, like one guy's Neil Patel, one of the heroes of the marketing world. Um, I'm surprised most of you haven't heard of him. But the, <laughs> but, and, and Sam, my colleague, he's like, I want to be like that guy. He watches videos, and he's like, how do I become like Neil Patel? And he's like, you know, oh, I can see that this is what happened in Neil's career. I want to, the, he's a picture of how Sam can grow. For me, when I was growing up, I can remember... My grandfather, I actually never met my grandfather. My grandfather was an Italian immigrant to this country. And um, I just heard stories from my grandmother. She would tell me about him. And he was like an entrepreneur. Like he came to this country with nothing and built some restaurants and uh, started uh, some restaurants. And for most of my teenage years, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be an entrepreneur from like the age of 11. I wanted to leave school when I was 16. And this guy, this, this, who I'd never met, was like a guiding light to me. I was like, I want to be like my grandfather, because I kind of have it within me and I, I'm going to be like him. So I, I had picked this role model and, I, and it kind of shaped how I lived my life. I think actually when we look at it, faced with the uncertainty of life, with all the decisions we've got to make, many of us want direction. We want someone or something to hang our hat on, to say this is how to do it. It's as simple as when I'm thinking to remodel my kitchen. I'm like, okay, you know, I need to talk to a few people who've done it before, and I need some direction. We want that direction. We subconsciously desire leadership. Even in the age of anti-authority, age we live in, I think all that's happened is we've switched who we look to for authority. So, you know, think about Twitter. When Twitter came out, they said it's going to be the democratization of information. We're going to know what each other's doing, and we're going to look to all the different people, and, the, you know, the, un- the normal people, they're going to be the ones with the voices at the top. What happens on Twitter? Everyone follows celebrities. (laughs) Everyone listens to a few key influencers, and those influencers suddenly don't just tell us a few things. We we now listen to what a celebrity thinks about a lifestyle choice. Basically, suddenly, these key celebrities uh, on Twitter, they're informing everything. We know what they eat for breakfast. We know know, what what they're wearing wearing today, what jumper they're wearing. They suddenly start to influence our whole lives. So I would say that today, I mean, you know, as a marketing team, I work for a business, we've got a marketing team, we're looking to influence those influencers so they can promote our product. They can tell other people about it. So we're doing that same thing. We are still following. We're still wanting to be led. Um, so there's an underlying desire in us for a hero. We want to be led. And yet, there's a problem. Because we so often see a rejection of authority. We see, you know, just think about all the things we've seen. We see protests, we see strikes, we see rebellion, rebellion against parents. Who of you are parents here? You'll know that, that there are times you experience that rebellion, that rejection. So on one hand, we want a hero, and on the other hand, we reject authority. Why do we reject authority? Because our heroes are broken. The biggest problem we have to, for our problem of wanting, to, wanting a hero, wanting leadership, is that our heroes are not the people that we want them to be. Think about Old Testament kings. Think about the people that God raised up. David, Great, hope of the nation, slept with Bathsheba, sinned, reject, like, threw away, like threw away the, the, well, you know what I mean, threw it all away, like Eric Cantor. Um, Saul, he tried to kill David. Like the, the, the kings of the Old Testament, they're not, um, they're not the people that we want them to be. 
Think about the last half century. I've got a few people. Lance Armstrong. Everyone loved Lance Armstrong whenever he was prominent.、Um, he, <laughs> he had the, everyone got a Livestrong yellow band. Everyone was like, Lance Armstrong fighting against cancer, five times winner of Tour de France, was it? You know, he's, he's the guy we really, we really admire. Oh, actually, it turns out he was on drugs the whole time, and that's how he's winning all those races. So he wasn't the leader we want him to be. Think about Tony Blair. Everyone, when he got elected, Tony Blair was our hero. You know, he was not, things can only get better. It was, he was、uh, elected on a kind of swathe of public support. By the time he left, off, left office, there were people who wanted to arrest him for war crimes. Like he was, he was really disliked, particularly by many of the people who had wanted him elected in the first place. They felt let down, they felt angry. This, this great hope of new Labour was just like everyone else. They were just as broken. You remember the sleaze, because there'd been a lot of sleaze scandals in the 1990s with the Conservatives. And then what happened over the time the Labour Party were in? Same old problem, same old sleaze. They're just the same as the, as the rest. Think about Rolf Harris, a public entertainer who everyone really admired and, and liked. And then those scandals of what he's done. Same story. We build up heroes in our, as a society, and yet they let us down. Christian leaders, we, there are people who've left the church because they've seen Christian leaders and said, This Christian leader's it. I've got it. And then they sin, and then suddenly they don't have it anymore. In my own life, I am so apt to do this. This is literally one of my biggest, like, not one of my biggest problems. I've got lots of problems, but this is a big problem.、Um, <laughs> quite often, I go around life and I'm like, oh, I found him. He's the real deal. He's the guy I'm going to follow as I try to follow Jesus. He's it. And then, and then maybe I meet them and I'm like, oh, wow, I was so wrong. And, no, and, then, and then I literally go to, my, to Jen, my wife, and I'm like, oh, he's really rubbish. And she's literally like, she can see it coming now. So when I start complimenting people, she's like, Come on, Jeremy. He's not the hero. He's not perfect. There's going to be a day that you're going to find a flaw with him sometime. And, and, and so it's almost like she's preparing me for the inevitable letdown that's going to happen. I am so apt to do this. I think I had like four heroes at one point, four Christian heroes, and I met like two of them. And I was like, I don't want to meet the other two. <laughs> so,、um, they're great guys, but they just didn't live up to my expectations of them. So, what's the solution to our need for authority? And yet, The broken leadership that we face in the world. Leaders are broken and yet we want a leader. What's the answer? God has raised up a king, a king from among us. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, this is talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has now become our God man king. Our king reigning in heaven with the heavenly father. And he is the answer to our biggest problem, so to speak, of, of, of、uh, wanting authority and yet not wanting it. This is what, how he describes him in, in Hebrews、uh, chapter 1, verse 8 to 9. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is, this is of the Son, he says. So this is God speaking to Jesus.、Um, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is presented to us, not just, and there's kind of, if you think about back to the Old Testament and these kind of prophecies of the Messiah, there's kind of two streams. There's Messiah ben Yosef, ben Joseph, the suffering servant. That's the Isaiah 53 passages. That's where we talk about how he's going to die for the, he's going to be crushed for our iniquities. And then you've got Messiah ben David, the, the king, the king who is coming. You see, all the way through the Old Testament, you get these glimpses of this Messiah, this eternal king coming. And this, is another, and this is another kind of prophetic stream that Jesus、uh, fulfills. 
So, um, in fact, in Jeremiah 23, we see this most obviously. Verse 5 to 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall raise as Sorry, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So he's saying in Jeremiah, he's saying they're going to raise up a king in the line of David who's going to be, um, who's going to be our king. He shall reign as king. And so Jesus is that ultimate fulfillment. He's our king in heaven. Um, but he's a very different sort of king. There's two things that are really different about Jesus to all other kings. His selflessness, well, there's a lot of things, but two or three that I want to draw out. One, his selflessness. Kings typically rule for their own gain. People want to have power because they want to be in control. They want to have authority, prestige, money, etc. But Jesus' rule is started on a very, well, his, his heavenly rule is ushered in, in a, on a very different basis. The center of Jesus' rule start, or is ushered in by this sacrifice on the cross. So Jesus starts his kingly authority, his kingly reigning, by a sacrifice, a sacrifice of his own life. He makes, this is what makes him such a different king, is that Jesus is a selfless king, a king willing to sacrifice his own life for the good of his people, as opposed to all the others in authority over us who actually are in it for themselves. They're not in it for, for us. And there are examples of his kindness and compassion throughout the, throughout the Gospels, that same character coming through. And I really want to draw your attention to his humility. Jesus is a very different type of king because of his humility. Jesus, and this is kind of almost turning your understanding of leadership. If you think about leadership in the, in the secular world, it's about being brash, it's about being kind of in control, about being an authority that people go, yeah, he's the kind of guy I want to follow. But Jesus is willing to humble himself. His is a different type of leadership, what we might be described as servant leadership. And he takes the form of a servant. And we see this, uh, actually, Andrew already read it out in Philippians 2. Um, so this is talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. So Jesus humbles himself at least two prominent ways. One, he humbles himself to become a man. The king of the universe, the God, the Lord of the universe, humbles himself to the point where he's a baby. He has to weakly, like, as in, because he's a man, he obviously gets born. He's a baby. He experiences the, you know, having his nappies washed or whatever, being, you know, his his bottom wiped. He experiences the the weakness of flesh. He He humbles himself to become a man. And then he humbles himself again to be, to be a suffering servant, to be a criminal on the cross. And so he's such a humble king, willing to, to uh, humble himself. It's a bit like the back to the floor kind of programs we had about CEOs a few years ago, when CEOs would kind of go and be at the bottom rung. But the difference is that was kind of like a gimmick for TV. And this is literally Jesus' nature, willing to humble himself to the bottom. Um, and in his humility, he is perfect. He's obedi- he's, he's, it says he, he's becoming obedient to the point of death. So Jesus isn't just humble, he isn't just selfless, he's perfect. And in that perfect obedience, in that perfection that Jesus has, we can have confidence to follow him and trust him like no other leader. Every other leader is, there, is out for them. Okay, this is a bit of a strong kind of contrast, but every other leader might be argued is out for themselves and is ultimately broken. So even if they're a good guy, even if you yeah, I really want to follow that person, they're going to let you down. They're going to, they're going to sin. They're going to, they're going to not be the people you want them to be. But Jesus is perfect. 
So what are the implications then? And I guess I just want to leave you with this. Is Jesus the king of your life? If you're not a Christian, then then you're not recognizing the king. Jesus is Lord and king over the whole world and the universe. And so he's calling us to this right relationship, this obedient uh, response to him. Say, actually, yes, you are king. You are king over my life. I want you to be in control. His perfect life, his awesome sacrifice, and his divine majesty demand that response from us. And we respond to his call on our lives when we recognize him as prophet, priest, and king. We recognize him as prophet when we say, yes, Jesus, you are who you say you are. You are God in the flesh. I recognize that and I worship you. We recognize, him, we, we recognize it when we recognize him as priest. We say, thank you, Jesus. You have sacrificed yourself on the cross for me that I can be forgiven. And you recognize it as king when you, re- when you say, I recognize that you have ultimate authority in my life. And if he really is king, then he deserves that ultimate authority in our lives. So today you can pray to make him prophet, priest and king to recognize his authority, his majesty and the fact that he is God in your life. If you're a Christian, I just want to ask you a few questions about that because you recognized him as king if you're a Christian. Is he king of your wallet? Do you let him have authority over your spending? Is he king over your time? Is he king over your internet usage? Are you surrendered to his purposes? Are you willing to say, yes, anything, anywhere, whatever you call me to, I want you to do that? If you're anything like me, I think I often experience moments where I think, actually, I'm not surrendering this to him. I'm not giving him all authority to my life that I want, that he deserves in his rightful place as king. And so I guess I just leave you that question to meditate on, to pray and think, is there any ways I need to respond to that? So in conclusion then, Jesus is the crescendo. He's the ultimate prophet. He's, you know what crescendo is? It's kind of the, the loud bit of music at the end. Is that right? Um, he's the ultimate prophet. We saw glimpses of God before, and now we see the real thing. Now we see God in the flesh. He's the ultimate priest. Before, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were just a picture of what was going to come. He, he's ultimate. he brings us the ultimate forgiveness. His sacrifice alone is sufficient for our sins. And he's the ultimate king. Where all other kings let us down, where all, where all other kings are broken, he is the perfect king that we've been waiting for. And all these threads, all these beautiful different threads that actually, if you go back, you'll see in the Old Testament, come together in Jesus. I come from a Jewish background. After I became a Christian, I started to read the Old Testament and was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing how Jesus just fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies. And, it's, and you know, a lot of these are written hundreds of years before Jesus has ever come about. So it's quite amazing. And it's one of the things that really convinces me of the truthfulness of Christianity. And he's only able to play these roles in our lives because of the incarnation. He's only able to be the priest that we want because he came to become the sacrifice for sins. He's only able to be the prophet because he came as a man so we could see God. And he's only able to be the king or the type of king that he is because he's shown us and demonstrated his humility and his selflessness in coming to earth as a man. So then let's make him these roles in our lives. Let's recognize him for who he is, the visible image of the invisible God, the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf and the perfect authority and king in our lives. I'm going to pray now. And I think I'll make this prayer one that you can join in with me silently in your heart in the sense that if you're not a Christian here today, our prayer will recognize this, recognize that he's our prophet, priest and king. 
And if you are a Christian here, then it'll give you an opportunity to remind yourself of that and to kind of affirm that with me as I pray. And then if you aren't a Christian here and, and this is something you do do for the first time today, I'd just love to chat to you afterwards. Wow, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the prophet that we need, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that we get to see you in all your glory, your radiance. You're the perfect radiance of the Father, the radiance of God's glory. Lord, we worship you. We recognize that you are God in the flesh. Lord, we thank you that you are our king. We want to make you king of our lives, Lord Jesus. I want you to have authority over every part of our lives. Lord, we give you the bits of our lives that we're not giving to you currently. Lord Jesus, we give you all the difficult bits. We bring to you the bits of our lives that feel difficult at the moment, Lord, knowing that you experience suffering, that you know what it's like for us to experience this, Lord. We thank you that you bring, that you kind of come alongside us, Lord, that we can give you our burdens, Lord. We can cast our burdens to you, Lord. And just thank you also for your sacrifice for sins, Lord. Thank you for the blood that covers us, Lord Jesus. We receive that. We receive your sacrifice for us. We ask for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus. We just want to follow you. Amen.